letter four. Let's begin. It's all about, letter four is all about the topic of prayer. So he turns his attention to prayer. You guys ready? My dear Wormwood, the amateurish suggestions in your last letter warn me that it is high time for me to write to you fully on the painful subject of prayer. You might have spared the comment that my advice about his prayers for his mother, quote, proved singularly unfortunate. That is not the sort of thing a nephew should write to his uncle, nor a junior tempter to the undersecretary of a department. It also reveals an unpleasant desire to shift responsibility. You must learn to pay for your own blunders. Now, this is great irony. Why? What has Screwtape just said, the demonic thing to do, what, is he, what has he just said? He has just said uh, in a previous letter, hey, get your patient when he's dealing with his mother to take everything he says in the worst possible way. Take offense at everything. Even stuff that on paper is totally innocuous, get him to really take umbrage and, and, and be offended by it. That's exactly what he does. Apparently, Wormwood had written that the advice was, look at the quote, it proved singularly unfortunate. That's all he's saying. Hey, your advice didn't work out. But he read that text message, and he read it in the worst possible way. And we do the same thing, don't we? <laughs> And when we do, screw tape wins. Assume the absolute worst of what somebody means, and then with a little pride, not only are you mad that, that, that who do you think you are, but what does screw tape think? Who do you think I am? I'm the, and I love this, I'm the undersecretary of a department. You're just a junior tempter. Is that, that's why Lewis says hell is office politics. My title's this, and your title's this, and I outrank you, and this, and I'm the under, listen to that, I'm the undersecretary of a whole department, ooh, right? The irony. Well, uh, so here we go. The best thing, back, back to prayer. The best thing, where it is possible, is to keep the patient from the serious intention of praying altogether. That is a very important sentence. Because what that means is it should give hope to every Christian who says, well, I'm not very good at prayer. I am not as faithful in prayer. First of all, let me say this. If you're a Christian who thinks, I'm not where I need to be in prayer, you need to know every single Christian says that. Everybody. Because what's the alternative? Imagine meeting a Christian who's like, nope, I've perfected it. I am in perfect communion with God. I'm literally praying right now as I'm talking to you. You're, like, <laughs> you're delusional, right? Can you imagine how arrogant and prideful? So I don't know that you've ever thought of that because you think you're bad at prayer. Well, the first thing I want to tell you is, that, that makes first of all, that makes you a Christian. Christians feel like they're bad, but they feel like they're not far along enough. So what this is, what, 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 what screw tape is scared of, what shakes the very foundations of hell is when a Christian just prays, even if you pray badly, even if you, even if you don't know what you're saying when you're praying, even if your mind wanders. Well, everybody's mind wanders when you, we all struggle with that. So just pray. There is a, I, I wrote this down because this is what I thought of. Do you remember that scene in the movie Pirates of the Caribbean where the two pirates who lost their immortality or are now mortal are in the rowboat and they're having this discussion about the providence of God and the ethics of, are we stealing a ship or salvaging it? No one does, but now I've described to you the screen, the scene, so you can at least hear with me. And one pirate is holding the Bible that they salvaged off the ship, and it's upside down. We can, the, the viewer can see it's totally upside down. And it, the other one's like, you know, oh, you know, he's like, I don't feel right about what we did. And he's like, you know, and he says, since when do you care? 
and he holds up the Bible with all the sanctimony and self-righteousness. Remember, it's upside down. And he goes, since we lost our immortality, we got to care. And he thumps the Bible. We got to care about our mortal souls. And the other pirate goes, you know you can't read. And he goes, it's a Bible. You get credit for trying. I couldn't say it from the pulpit, but I'm not at a pulpit. I'm at a music stand. So let me tell you, when it comes to prayer, you get credit for trying. God loves you. He wants to hear from you. There's no angelic panel of judges like at the Olympics and figure skating. There's no angelic panel of judges who's waiting for you to pray to rate it. 9.5, 6.2, didn't use enough these and thous. That one was just a prayer to old Father Weegis. Who's You guys don't pray to Father Weegis? You don't know Father Weegis? Oh, Father Weegis come to you. Father Weegis, thank you. Father Weegis, I'm like, who's Father Weegis? Right? I, I know, I, okay, all right, all right. If you're watching this on YouTube, one of two things just happened. You either had a, you either had a good laugh at yourself or you have now become the, prayer, the biggest prayer jerk of all time because you will now notice that in other people and you'll be prideful over them, so don't let Screwtape win. Um, I think the thing that would solve that, by the way, is just uh, for everybody to calm down. It's okay to be silent in prayer. It's okay. not You don't have to race through it. Uh, sp spend time with your Heavenly Father. An angelic judge is not raiding you. He loves you. It's prayer. You get credit for trying. So that's why, that's why Screwtape says the thing that's really going to hurt us just keep him from praying altogether. I love that. That's such encouragement. So even if you're bad at praying, just pray. Now, when the patient, everybody see where I am? When the patient is an adult recently reconverted to the enemy's party. No, by the way, I don't think he means he somehow lost his salvation and came back. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about this particular Christian happens to be the kind of Christian, perhaps this is like your story. They grew up in church, lived a life of not part of church and really didn't care about God. They got saved then later in life. That's what he means by reconverted. He doesn't mean reconverted to Christ. He means reconverted, uh, you know, to the enemy's party. Uh, uh, he's back in church. Like your man, this is best done by encouraging him to remember or to think he remembers the parrot-like nature of his prayers in childhood. Well, uh, here, sometimes I don't know what you guys want to, uh, I, I never know what trips people up or what's helpful. But you remember, you know, it's 1941 England. So they're growing up, a lot of them are growing up in a very high liturgical um, environments and so they're they're taught the prayer uh, uh, you know modern day example is little kids now i lay me down to sleep i pray the lord my soul to keep you know and so you keep that going and then when he's an adult he thinks well that's all prayer is and so screw tape says try to make him think that's all prayer is so here's why not because that's necessarily bad but he'll he'll take the pendulum and swing it so far the other way look in reaction against that he may be persuaded to aim at something entirely spontaneous inward informal and unregularized and what this will actually mean to a beginner will be an effort to produce in himself a vaguely devotional mood in which real concentration of will and intelligence have no part. <laughs> in other words, get them to switch their brain off and think that prayer is just this sort of, well, I guess if I feel prayerful or whatever, that that's prayer. One of their poets, Coleridge, has recorded that he didn't pray, quote, with moving lips and bended knees. No, he merely composed his spirit to love and indulged a sense of supplication. Ha! That's exactly the sort of prayer we want. That 
if anybody wants to go home and read that Coleridge poem, it's From the Pains of Sleep by uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge. That's exactly the sort of prayer we want. It bears a superficial resemblance to the prayer of silence as practiced by those who are very far advanced in the enemy's service. Clever and lazy patients can be taken in by it for quite a long time. All he's saying here is, you know, there are people that are super advanced in Christian maturity that if they say, I'm just going to be present in the moment and silent and all that stuff, it's like that's really helpful for them. But for the vast majority of us that aren't that far along in prayer, that puts us in basically like just some sort of, you know, we're not actually asking God for anything like he wants. We're just composing our spirit to love. And he's like, you know, it's a bunch of nonsense. But it looks like that sort of deep, you know, prayer that uh, I guess he's thinking here of, you know, um, cloistered uh, uh, clergy prayers. I, mean, I, I don't know. At any rate, at the very least, they can be persuaded, watch this, that the bodily position makes no difference to their prayers, for they constantly forget what you must always remember, that they are animals, and that whatever their bodies do affects their souls. You know, it's funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. <clears throat> Instead of teaching on this passage, I'm just going to challenge you to apply it. This week, if you don't normally do this, I'm going to ask you to change your posture of prayer. When you pray, kneel. Just physically kneel your body. If you're not physically able to do that, that's okay. God understands. Do the best you can. But those of you who are physically able to kneel and pray, uh, doing that, Lewis has this idea, and it's going to come up again and again in Screwtape Letters, that our bodies, and he's absolutely right about this, our bodies are more connected, how do I say this? The Bible honors the body a lot more than like Eastern mysticism, which says we're to escape the body, right? The spirits are what's important. The Bible says, no, God made your body. And, 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 and your bo you, have a, you are a soul, but you have a body. And that's why the Bible is, uh, talks about fasting, right? We, why would we do the discipline of fasting? That's not spiritual, it's our body. Ah, but they're connected. Why? That, that explains, by the way, the Bible's sexual ethic. Don't you know when he talks, when, when Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 talks about why we should be pure, he says, don't you know your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So honor God with your body. So again, I, I don't want to belabor the point, but I do think it's interesting that sometimes, uh, I, I've said this before, Screwtape loves it when tr people try to be more spiritual than God. And so they might say something like, well, I don't need to kneel. I know God is king in my heart. I don't need to kneel. Maybe you don't, but wouldn't it be an act of humility to kneel if he's really the king, if he's really God? Just try it. Now, if you begin making it a law for everybody, and unless you kneel, you're not really praying, well, now you've gone into legalism. And Screwtape loves that too, of course. So both errors are to be avoided. All I'm saying is, try it. If you don't normally kneel, try it for a week. Okay? Now, if this fails... You must fall back on a subtler misdirection of his intention. Oh, good. Lewis, you're hard to understand when you're not subtle. This should be fun. Okay. Whenever they're attending to the enemy himself, we are defeated. Everybody get that? When, you're, when you are saying, God, I am before you, then they're in big trouble. But there's ways of preventing them from doing so. The simplest is turn their gaze away from him and towards themselves. Oh. Keep them watching their own minds and trying to produce feelings there by the action of their own wills. See, when they meant to ask him for charity, make me more loving, 
Let them instead start trying to manufacture charitable feelings for themselves and not notice this is what they're doing. When they meant to pray for, their cur pray for courage, let them be really trying to feel brave. When they say they're praying for forgiveness, let them be trying to feel forgiven. And then teach them to estimate the value of each prayer by their success in producing the desired feeling. And never let them suspect how much success or failure of that kind depends on, you know, whether they're well or ill, fresh or tired at the moment. Oh, so good. So let me apply this not just to prayer, but to worship in general. I, can, you see the, can you see the difference between these, these questions? When you leave a church service asking, did I worship? Okay? That's the first question. How is that different than, when just, ima just imagine you're getting in the minivan with all the fam and somebody asks, would they ask, did I worship God today? That's not normally what we would ask. Instead, this is convicting. Does everybody see the difference between these two questions? Does it, oh, sorry, if you can't read them in the back. The first is, did I worship? The other, did I enjoy worship? How common is it for me to ask this question? Never about the sermon. <laughs> I don't always enjoy that. But you see, all joking aside, does everybody see the difference between did I worship and did I enjoy worship? What Screwtape is saying is in prayer, in worship, get the focus off of God and get it where? Get it on me. Did they sing the songs I like? And then if Screwtape really can get you down if he can really, did I, watch this, did I feel worshipful? I didn't know an adjective, but worshipy, you know? Did I feel like I was in a devotional mood? Now watch that. Now you tell me how dangerous that could get in the life of a Christian. Am I wrong? If you left and you began, and then what you start doing is you start evaluating, did I worship, which is probably legit. Did, did I bring my best to God today? Did I... Was I fully focused on him as best that I know how? Did I try to understand the sermon? And man, he went a long time. But I, you know, I, I, I or did I enjoy? Now, this is completely consumeristic and about me. And then did I, do I feel worshipful? And then you can evaluate a whole spiritual life on, do I currently feel worshipy? Which is not the issue at all. It's like a little kid leaving a birthday party all sad. I didn't get a single present. Well, was it your birthday? No. Whose was it? Timmy's. What happened? Timmy got all the presents. What's the worst part? The one I brought went to Timmy too. So I don't think you understand how a birthday party works, right? We're here to give to this. They're, they're the guests that aren't. It's not about you. And I think you'd have more fun if you'd forget about yourself and just enjoy and celebrate Timmy. And when we leave, we laugh at that because that's not very sophisticated. I wonder how many of us are guilty of the same thing. That's super convicting, so let's move on. <laughs> but of course the enemy will not meantime be idle see there's the hope again Christian even if you do badly you get credit for trying whenever there's prayer there's danger of his own immediate action don't forget screw tape's not the only one out here working the Holy Spirit's working and it, they, hate, they hate God for this God the enemy is cynically indifferent to the dignity of his position and ours, as pure spirits, and to human animals on their knees, he pours out self-knowledge in a quite shameless fashion. 
That sums up why the enemy hates God so much. Why would he get involved with these odious little bipeds called humans? But even if he defeats your first attempt at misdirection, we have a subtler weapon. Oh, good. Let's, another layer of subtlety. The humans do not start from that direct perception of him, which we, unhappily, cannot avoid. This is big. They've never known that ghastly luminosity, that stabbing and searing glare which makes the background of permanent pain to our lives. If you look into your patient's mind when he's praying, you will not find that. What's his point? Part of the problem for humans is we, we can't even come close to picturing God. None of you have. I haven't, right? So, so if you examine the object to which he's attending, you'll find it is a composite object containing many quite ridiculous ingredients. It's true. When you pray, if you're not careful, you start to think, well, what am I imagining? Who am I praying to? Well, there'll be images derived from pictures of the enemy as he appeared during the discreditable episode known as the incarnation. So you might picture, you know, Jesus. Well, they'll be vaguer, perhaps quite savage and puerile. That word means childish. Images associated with the other two persons. There'll even be some of his own reverence and of bodily sensations accompanying it, objectified and attributed to the object revered. I have known cases where what the patient called his, quote, God was actually located. Yeah, it's, you know, it's up and to the left at the corner of his bedroom ceiling or inside his own head or in a crucifix on the wall. But whatever the nature of the composite object, you must keep him praying to it, to the thing that he has made, not to the capital P, person who has made him. You may even encourage him to attach great importance to the correction and improvement of his composite object and to keep it steadily before his imagination during the whole prayer. Watch this. He wants to get you praying to the image of God he has made. That's what Screwtape wants you to do. He wants you to create a version of God and pray to that. Mark it down. Underline it. The sentence starting, for if he ever, is a mountaintop in this book. Here we are. This is one of the mountain peaks. This is the Jungfrau in the Alps. This is, this is Everest in the Himalayas. You ready? For if he ever comes to make the distinction... If he ever consciously directs his prayers, quote, not to what I think thou art, but to what thou knowest thyself to be. Our situation is for the moment desperate. All his, once all his thoughts and images have been flung aside, or if they're retained, they're retained with a full recognition of their merely subjective nature. And the man trusts himself to the completely real, external, invisible presence there with him in the room, and never knowable by him as he is known by it, why then it is that the incalculable whole he, he, the in, something awful may occur. Okay, guys, here's what you do with that sentence. If you got chills just then, thinking about, wait a minute, when I go to God in prayer, I, I'm praying to the one who knows me more than I know him. I'm praying to the one not the image I've made. So God, I'm just going to pray to whatever it is that you know yourself to be. If you got chills when you read that, good. If you don't get chills, go back and reread that sentence and you'll know you understand it when you get the chills. What you're saying is, that's, that's nakedness of soul in prayer. That's saying, you can see me in ways I can't see you. Wait a minute, I'm going to a God of my who made me? I'm going to my creator. In avoiding this situation, the real nakedness of the soul in prayer, you'll be helped by the fact that the humans themselves don't desire it as much as they suppose. There is such a thing as getting more than they bargained for. <laughs> Your affectionate uncle screwed Dave. And he's absolutely right. There's a lot of humans that don't want that kind of, like, 
He knows me in ways I don't. He, so I'm not, I'm not praying to what I think you are, even though I have all these images of you, but I'll just, I'll just set them aside for a minute thinking that, yeah, he, but even if I do think I know you a little, it's through a glass darkly, but you're, you're you and you're what you know yourself to be. You're transcendent, not eminent. Well, so uh, do that this week. Neil, uh, bodily position, I would do that. And then I would also, it, uh, again, I would ask you to maybe just try it. Just try it. If it doesn't work, it's okay. Um, uh, or, you know, but try praying that way. And, and, and see if you can reread that. You need, that's worth getting your head around, even if it's a difficult passage. Not to what I think thou art, but to what thou knowest thyself to be. Uh, by the way, that's why God, when he appears in Exodus 3 to Moses at the burning bush, uh, he asks, what's your name? He says, I am who I am. Completely self-dependent. See, you depend on somebody else. You're who, you, you know, your parents, uh, uh, right? And, and, and you had to be created by God. God has no creator. He is exactly who he, he is, who he is. And that's why when he was um, appeared, he appeared as a burning bush and the bush was on fire, but the, 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 the bush didn't burn up. It wasn't consumed. Apparently he has fire that need, needs no fuel. Just self-authorized. Who created God? Nobody. That's some deep stuff. But you start thinking about that, you're like, wow, God will be who God will be. That is very scary stuff. Here's what makes it not scary. Here's what makes it great news. If you're curious who God ended up determining, he's completely self-determinant. He can be whatever kind of God he wants. And I want every Christian to pause with me and think of all the kind of gods he could have been. He chose to be the kind of God who wouldn't be God without you. He would choose to be the kind of God that would put his only begotten son on a cross for us and our salvation. And of all the kinds of God he could have chosen to be, that's who he chose. That's incredible. That's the gospel. Okay. Number five. All right, clock's ticking. Oh, man. But this one's my favorite. I mean, letter six is really my favorite, so I'm going to sprint. Letter five, my dear Wormwood. It is a little bit disappointing to expect a detailed report on your work and to receive instead such a vague rhapsody as your last letter, meaning uh, emotional. You say you're, quote, delirious with joy. Oh, because the European humans have started another of their wars. Ah, here we go. Letter four was about prayer. Letter five is about war and politics. Well, and obviously here he's talking about apparently World War II just broke out. Okay. Well, I see very well what's happened to you. You're not delirious. You're only drunk. Reading between the lines in your very unbalanced account of the patient's sleepless night, I can reconstruct your state of mind fairly accurately. See, uh, Screwtape has apparently been through World War I, so he's kind of thinking, oh yeah, I know what you're thinking. For the first time in your career, you have tasted that wine, which is the reward of all our labors, the anguish and bewilderment of a human soul. Now right there, Screwtape, if you're curious, he reveals what he's really after. The anguish and bewilderment of a human soul. John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said, The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. Well, it's gone to your head. I can hardly blame you. I don't expect old heads on young shoulders, which I'm sure is some delightful British colloquialism. Did the patient, res oh, did the patient respond to some of your terror pictures of the future? Hmm? Did you work in some good self-pitying glances at the happy past? Some fine thrills in the pit of his stomach, were there? Oh, you played your violin prettily, did you? Well, well, it's all very natural. But do remember, Wormwood, duty comes before pleasure. In other words, don't blow it. Be cool, man. Be cool. 
I know you enjoy the terror that the outbreak of a war or a pandemic or whatever natural disaster uh, screw tape and the demons want to dream up. Uh, I know, but be cool. Here's why. If any present self-indulgence on your part leads to the ultimate loss of the prey, <laughs> you will be left eternally thirsting for that draft of which you are now so much enjoying your first sip. In other words, if you, if you overplay your hand here and the prey gets away, it's going to be worse because you'll taste something and you'll be, oh, can't. So if, on the other hand, by steady and cool-headed application here and now, you can finally secure his soul, he will then be yours forever. A brimful living chalice of despair and horror and astonishment, which you can raise to your lips as often as you please. Uh, hey, that's a little creepy. Um, but the Bible actually picks up on some of this language. There, you'll see this throughout screw tape letters. I want you to watch for this. There is de in the hell. It's about devouring. They're they're eating. They're always eating one another, consuming. So you're going to see this over and over in the screw tape letters. God wants union with a human being, and yet, when God wants to unite with a human being, He wants that human being to become ever more themselves. And it's like they're more themselves. When I unite with an apple, we're united, but the apple had to die, right? I mean, everybody, like, the strong devoured the weak in that. And that weak apple was devoured by me. See, that's Satan's kind of union. So it's creepy. You'll see it all the time. But it is biblical in a way. Uh, uh, remember in 1 Peter, um, uh, your adversary, the devil, is like a, like a roaring lion. Remember, he's prowling around doing what? Seeking whom he may devour. And the more you think about demonic imagery, you think about devouring. Now let me ask you this. He wants to devour eternally a human soul. Just back up for a second. Screwtape is a satanic demon. Why would he help Wormwood out? Why would he want him to be fed in this way? Is he feeding Wormwood or fattening Wormwood? All this advice, you'll see in the end. This isn't love. He's not helping this guy out as a favor. They're demons. They hate each other. There's always backstabbing. And you'll see at the very end, the only reason he wants him to devour that is so just to be a little bit more delicious when Screwtape devours him. Ah, okay, I'm not trying to give away the ending. Okay. I mean, they're demons. It's not going to end good. Okay, yeah. All right. Uh, so that's the devouring imagery. Um, but in the meantime, he's going to try to be very helpful. So here we go. Uh, uh, where was I? Oh, yeah. So do not allow any temporary excitement to distract you from the real business of undermining faith and preventing the formation of virtues. And there we are again. Uh, goals of the demons. Undermine faith, prevent formation of virtues. So give me without fail in your next letter a full account of the patient's reaction to the war so that we can consider whether you are more like, whether you're likely to do more good by making him an extreme patriot or an ardent pacifist. In other words, should he be all in on one political party? Let's go to war, let's do it. Or, no, we should stay out of the war altogether. Another political party. There are all sorts of possibilities. In the meantime, I must warn you not to hope too much from a war. Now, we're going to come back to this point. So in the interest of time, I'm going to just hit it and move on. Notice throughout the screw tape letters, you'll see this all the time. He, Satan doesn't care which political party you're a part of. All he cares about is separating you from God. So he can do that. He's, he's just trying to make use of that, whichever it is. Uh, and, and divide Christians and all that stuff. And so he... He doesn't really care if you're rich or poor. If, he's, if you're poor, he'll try to make you steal and be filled with, with coveting. And if you're rich, he'll try to make you arrogant and uh, self-satisfied in this world. He, he doesn't care. He wants to use whatever situation you're in. 
And I think that sometimes we make our political affiliation uh, uh, religion, and uh, it can become idolatry, in which case we just played into Screwtape's hands. Of course, a war is entertaining. The immediate fear and suffering of the humans is a legitimate and pleasing refreshment for our myriads of toiling workers. But what permanent good does it do us unless we make use of it for bringing souls to our Father below? See, he wants to make use of it. When I see the temporal suffering of humans who finally escape us, I feel as if I've been allowed to taste the first course of a rich banquet and then denied the rest. It's worse than to not have tasted it at all. The enemy, true to his barbarous methods of warfare, Anybody? Does that make anybody smile? That here you have a demonic, satanic being accusing God of barbarism? He's literally torturing a devourer? Okay. Allows us to see, watch this, God, he, he says God is cruel. Why? Because he allows us to see the short misery of his favorites only to tantalize and torment us, to mock the incessant hunger which, during this present phase of the great conflict, his blockade is admittedly imposing. Here's what he means. The Apostle Paul goes through prison. They beat him. They eventually martyr him. Peter, he's crucified. Uh, Lottie Moon, she gives her life uh, so that she can reach people in China for the gospel and ultimately is malnourished and, and, and dies. So, so here's some of God's favorites. And, and Satan says, the, we enjoy the suffering they went through, but the, in the end, they produced so much spiritual fruit and so much good came out of their suffering that it's almost like we are mocked in the end for all eternity. We are mocked and tantalized by what we couldn't have. It's like God dangles that in front of us just to mock us. Now, why do I bring this up? For anyone who's going through suffering, has it ever occurred to you, your suffering and the way you handle it may just be God's way of mocking the devil? A Christian's faith in light of suffering mocks the devil. To have faith in a, in a, in a time of great pain no wonder he said, I'm going to build my church on that kind of confession and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Well, let us therefore think rather how to use than how to enjoy this European war. For it has certain tendencies inherent in it which are in themselves by no means in our favor. Look, we, yes, we may hope for a good deal of cruelty and unchastity. Fine, I want you know, soldiers who uh, you know, are, treat other people very cruelly and unchastity. Uh, you know, everybody going crazy. They get away from home and they, they go to these other lands and all sorts of unchastity. Fine. But if we're not careful, we shall see thousands turning in this tribulation to the enemy, while tens of thousands who don't go that far will nevertheless have their attention diverted from themselves to values and causes which they believe to be higher than the self. Now that, uh, that happened. I uh, was in New Jersey, but, but made it to New York in the fall of 02. So I wasn't in New York City for 9-11. Uh, but that happened in churches all across New, New Jersey and New York. And I'm sure it happened here. After 9-11, what happened? Everybody flooded the churches. It was like a wake-up call. So here you have this devastation, this satanic devastation, loss of human life. And Screwtape says, actually, in the end, that didn't help us. Because it woke a bunch of people up to their true spiritual condition. And you think about that. God, the Bible says, he, he causes all things to work together for good. So Screwtape's not necessarily happy about this war. It's very interesting. I know, I know the enemy disapproves of many of these causes. In other words, they're saying people will go and after, like after 9-11, they'll, they'll start donating to charities. Well, some of the charities probably aren't Christian and maybe they 
aren't perfect. So he says, I know God disapproves many of his causes, but here's where he's so unfair. He often makes prizes of humans who've given their lives for causes he thinks bad on the monstrously sophistical ground. A, a, a sophistry is a false argument that superficially appears reasonable. That the humans thought them good and were following the best they knew. Now, that's a very complicated sentence. Here's what he's saying. It's not fair because God gives them credit for trying. That's what he's saying. He's furious about that. He says, it's not fair. He shouldn't do that. He shows mercy. And Screwtape cannot understand mercy. If Screwtape could understand mercy, he wouldn't be Screwtape. He'd be saved. If they're saved. I didn't mean to go off on that. Scratch that out of the video. Okay. It's too complicated. Consider, too, what undesirable deaths occur in wartime. Now, that is an underlined undesirable deaths. Now, you ponder that for a second. You're telling me a demon would believe certain deaths to be undesirable? Of course. It, of course. Precious in the eyes of the Lord are the death of his saints. To be absent from the body is present with the Lord. Of course that makes him upset. Men are killed in places where they knew they might be killed and to which they go if they are at all of the enemy's party prepared. How much better for us if all humans died in costly nursing homes amid doctors who lie, nurses who lie, friends who lie, as we have trained them, promising life to the dying, encouraging the belief that you know sickness excuses every indulgence, and even if our workers know their job, withholding all suggestion of a priest, lest it should betray to the sick man his true condition. And how disastrous for us is the continual remembrance of death which war enforces. One of our best weapons, contented worldliness, is rendered useless. In wartime, not even a human can believe he's going to live forever. Okay. Amazing sentence. Amazing sentences. What on earth is he talking about? Why does he want everybody to die in a costly nursing home with nurses who lie and doctors who lie? Is he, is he saying healthcare professionals are liars? No. No, 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 not at all. What he's saying here is, <clears throat> if a person is not saved, what has Satan trained the culture to say to that person? They're on their deathbed. What has the culture said? Let's just make them comfortable. It's going to be okay. They're going to be in a better place. And the preachers of the gospel say they are most certainly not going to be in a better place. And as cruel as this sounds, their number one need on their deathbed is not comfort. It's truth. They need to be saved. So what he's saying here is if you've got a doctor who's going through saying peace, peace, when there is no peace, he's been trained by the culture. So compare... And, and, and he says, why would somebody do that? They would do that because they'd say, but they're so sick. They're in so much pain. That probably excuses any sins they've done. He's going, no, only the blood of Jesus excuses me. So I actually have a, a, a family member, a relative, a cousin, who his ministry, he goes to deathbeds. He made nursing homes and hospitals. And as part of that hospice care, no one is saying comfort is a bad thing. The hospice workers are angels. Have you ever met one? They're, they're gifts from God. No question about that. But he goes and works as part of that team and offers, kind of like, you know, in the ancient times, call in the priest. He does, it's kind of, a, I guess, a Protestant version of that. He goes and he says, is there any questions about your soul that you'd like to ask me? And his job is to lead somebody to Christ, sometimes moments before it's eternally too late. Now, to me, you, you may say that's tacky. You may say, well, I don't know about that. Families may get really offended by it. To me, I'm like, rescue the perishing. Like, what, what else? If this is real, hey, Listen, if I'm not right with God and I come to the end of my life, y'all, don't give me comfort. Give me truth. I don't care how much pain I'm in. Stop the morphine until I can get right with God. Does that make sense? That, that's what he's saying here. He says, in war, 
You have a situation where people are perpetually thinking about death. Screwtape goes, we don't want that. We don't want that at all. What do we want? Remember the stream? We want people thinking about Netflix. We want people thinking they're ever going to die. In fact, we don't even call it death anymore. Passing along, right? passing away. It's a celebration. It's all this denial of death. Screwtape says, yeah, that. See? Uh, contented worldliness is what he wants. That's the weapon. Mm. Contented worldliness is 2023 USA. And um, Screwtape probably would say, hey, if he were looking at 2023 America, he would say, you know, should we send war to the United States? Or I don't know. I think Screwtape would probably say, eh, I think he'd vote against. I think he said, we got a good thing going right now with contented worldliness. So should we send war? Nope. Let's send Hulu. You know, let's send, uh, you get the idea. I, I know this is being recorded. I mentioned Netflix and Hulu. I'm not against these, um, and I'm not sponsoring any particular. <laughs> I know, Disney Plus, all right, all right. I know that Scabtree and others have seen in wars a great opportunity for attacks on faith. I don't know. I think that view is exaggerated. See, the enemy's human partisans have all been plainly told by him that suffering is an essential part of what he calls redemption. So that a faith which is destroyed by a war or a uh, COVID cannot, I'm sorry, it says pestilence, cannot really have been worth the trouble of destroying. You see what he's saying there? He's saying, look, it, it, come on, it, you're told you're going to suffer. So if that's really what, oh, there's a war, I'm suddenly going to give up Christianity and God's not real. He's like, what kind of faith really was it? I'm speaking now of diffuse suffering over a long period such as the war will produce. Of course, at that precise moment of terror, bereavement, or physical pain, you may catch your man when he is when his reason is temporarily suspended. But even then, if he applies to enemy headquarters, I found that the post is nearly always defended. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. All right, my clock says seven minutes and 12 seconds left. So I'm at a really pivotal point here. Um, and I think what we could do, um, Yeah, what I was thinking about doing um, was, uh, if, you'll, if any of you have your syllabus, I was thinking about uh, today, 4, 5, and 6. February 1st, we're going to do 7 and 8. And then on February 8th, I am preaching revival for, uh, you guys may know Steve Brown. He's now pastor at First Baptist Church in Boaz, Alabama. And so I'll be at First Baptist Church, Boaz. Uh, that night leading them in revival and I had had on here to discuss Dr. Jerry Root's video he has another great video I think they're great you know maybe not everybody uh, thinks they're as great as I do so um, so instead on February 8th what I was thinking about doing was filming a letter or two of me just teaching it and then we'll show it on these screens here and then give you guys some um, discussion questions to discuss so I may um, I may save six for next week because it really is my favorite. Is that a wise plan, you think? Yeah, okay. That's what I told him you would do last time. <laughs> <laughs> so good. So good. Like, God just knew exactly who I would need, you know what I mean? So good. Um, yeah, all right. So, so let's do that. So we'll, 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 you guys, so letter six, letter four was about prayer. Letter five was about war and politics, and letter six is about anxiety. Now, I cannot imagine a more modern uh, topic, but the way he covers it in 1941, it, this to me is where he shows his prescience. 
the ability to, to be able to somehow know what what people are speaking about in, in 2023, and he's talking about anxiety. And here's why. Here, here's why. Um, so, so that's what I'll do. So anyway, before I tell you why, four or five this week, we'll try to do either six next week. It may just, six may be so rich, we spend the whole time on six, but if not, six, seven. And then we'll do eight and nine on February 8th. I know you guys aren't looking at the syllabus, so this, if, if you're not, just take my word for it, and I'll announce all this and put it up there next week. I can even print brand new syllabi next week. How's that? And, um, but that way we'll have a video on February 8th of me, and I'll give you some, some questions to think about. But in closing, um, what I was going to say is, uh, I guess I heard Eugene Peterson say this, you know, long ago. And uh, uh, the reason why uh, Lewis still, to me, he still lands, like it still works after all these years. Um, because the big topic is relevance, at least among preachers. We talk about that a lot. Relevance. Are your sermons relevant? Is everything culturally relevant? And here's the quote, I think it was Eugene Peterson, here's the quote, and it's always stuck with me. And he said this, if you dig the well deep enough, relevance becomes irrelevant. So I'll say it again. If you dig the well deep enough, relevance becomes irrelevant. What he means is, if you talk about things that matter, and they matter for all eternity, it doesn't really matter if you've got the latest pop culture knowledge. It doesn't matter if, you know, it's like I talk, like, like with youth workers. Some of you volunteer in the youth group. You say, but I don't want anything about youth culture. You know, I'm old and I don't understand the, the, the talk and tick and, and chat and the snap. And, you know, I, I don't know all that stuff and I don't wear cool clothes or whatever. And I said, do you love students? Do you love them? Oh, yeah. Do you care about them? Oh, yeah. Do you pray for them? Yeah. Do you know their name? Yeah, I know every one of them. Do you, does it matter to you? The, their stories, do you value them? Do you love their stories? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Relevance becomes irrelevant. They don't care if you know who uh, Liv and Maddie are. Wow, that was like 20 years ago. Is that as good as I could get? Uh, yeah, they don't know if you can hit that gritty. Okay, they don't care. Uh, but, they, but, but they care if you know their name. And that's what he means. When you talk about love and you talk about anxiety and you talk about fear and you talk about stuff that matters. And uh, so I had this seminary professor's old uh, mean and, uh, and he was an interim pastor for a church. And I thought, oh, Lord, bless them. Like, wow. And he told him on the first Sunday, I'm going to preach sermons out of the Bible. I can promise you they will be boring, but they will be important. Let us begin. You know, over the years, the more I think about it, it's really true. He's talking about things that matter. And that's what this book talks about, some of the things that matter. So thank you for being here. And thank you for uh, investing in what I think matters. And so pray on your knees. Pray to the one who knows what he knows himself to be.